On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group continues our discussion of Peter Gabriel III, Melt. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we finish out our discussion on the third Peter Gabriel album, Melt. So, gentlemen, welcome back. We can... uh, I, I would say that that yeah, we've we've taken a breath. We're well rested after you know a week's break and ready to get back in and finish out Peter Gabriel three. But I think the week that we've all had has it sounds like it's been a just a beatdown. <laughs> uh, cheers so, to that. Goodness. So, Hopefully, hopefully we can we can bring this through and and we had had we had had hopes, high hopes that we were going to be able to bring Tom in. Uh, to be able to to add his two cents on this most wonderful of Peter Gabriel albums. But, uh, you know, Tom has not been able, you know, he's had other responsibilities to take care of. So yeah. here, once again, parenting gets in the way. So we once again, um, in, we'll have to carry the flame, take hold of the flame as it were. Oh. And, uh, and, and, you know, try to do Tom proud as we close out the second part of Peter Gabriel three melt. Now, as I recall, at the end of last episode, we had covered up through Family Snapshot, which leaves us one track on the end of side one and then all of side two to cover here tonight. It's funny to me, I've never listened to this on vinyl, and it's just funny to me that that side one doesn't end with Family Snapshot. Like it seems such like a perfect. Right, wouldn't that just be a, a perfect cutoff? Yeah, and and through the wire, it certainly would be a fun way to start start side two. Although I games without frontiers, I'm sure is fantastic as well. Yeah, I mean you can't really go wrong. I will say it's funny since you brought up you know, or since we're talking about the vinyl, I I have to say just a an observation that I have. This is one of the few vinyl records that I recall listening to in the last couple of years that I listen to it and I get literally there's there's very little or no difference or betterment about this this particular album on vinyl as opposed mm. to CD. I don't know if it's if it's because I've been listening to the CD for so long or or what, but there's just nothing exciting or or revelatory about this vinyl. So that, that's interesting. Kind of an, yeah, it's an it's an interesting little like I said, it's just an observation and you know, I I don't know what it means, but when you listen to this on vinyl or CD and you get to family snapshot, Joe, do you stand up and act it out like I do every time I hear it? <laughs> I, I do not act it out. No, I've <laughs> I've never even contemplated that. Oh, do you gosh. Uh, do you do you, you know, get behind a tree with a uh, sniper stance and not not so much. Not but... so much. But um, 
but and now and now now I now I learned it on guitar. So now I just goodness gracious. You were noodling on that uh, before the last episode. I'm very. I good. was, and I took it a little step further over over the last week because of your out of body experience that you had <laughs> in talking about it. Re- really inspired me. Yeah, that pretty much uh, pretty much wore me out last week. Uh, so. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's it. And, you know, obviously I had uh, my technical difficulties, so kudos to Ken and the backup recording for capturing nice. that moment. That would have been very, very sad if we had uh, if we had lost that little bit of uh, podcast magic, as it were. But I, I do think, you know, irrespective of where the album cuts off, I do think for our discussion, ending at Family Snapshot made perfect sense. And mm-hmm. I do think starting at End Through the Wire is, you know, perfectly acceptable. Yes, and I think End Through the Wire, whether you're flipping a record or not, is a, is a very good very good choice for a follow-up to Family Snapshot. And how do we feel about, like, there's this very repetitive guitar tone. Yeah. Uh, guitar line throughout the song. How do we feel about this guitar tone for 1980? Oh, well, 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 um... <laughs> Uh, okay, so, uh, so <laughs> talking about and through the wire now. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. So, yeah. so, so of note, you know, we we we've got some great guitar players on here. We we've got Robert Fripp jumping in on three songs, uh, most notably, you know, I don't remember and no self control. Uh, David Rhodes was, you know, you know, a great you know, follow up to Fripp and because the, the dude sings and he's been singing live for Gabriel for years. But now we're getting into this weird territory where he's got Dave Gregory on two songs and particular to end through the wire, Paul Weller. So mm-hmm. I, I, when I hear this song, I think of big star. I think, uh, what was the pr- producer on the, uh, on two on, uh, on Gabriel's second album? Oh, are you oh Bob Ezrin? Yeah, you're yeah. talking about Ezrin on one. Uh, That's one, yeah. Because Fripp did two. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so when I hear End Through the Wire, I'm like, yeah. Bob Ezrin called. He wants his Kiss guitar sound back. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that, like, I don't know, suspended kind of moving around the neck kind of a stuff. And that I'm assuming that that Paul Weller, and, and it's a great technique, and, 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 and we dig it, you know, and things like, you know, Bowie and all over the map, everybody's got a little bit of that going on, but it doesn't really suit Gabriel. Do you guys get that impression? Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Uh, if you're not paying attention, you can kind of, you know, zoom right by it and not really think about mm. it. But but once you start to think about it, it's one of those things you, you can't unhear it. And yes, it it is decidedly... Um, out of the Gabriel milieu, it seems like you know it, it came from another planet and and landed here before it takes off again. I'm glad it's not any more than that, um, but it, it is. It's 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 also, little, yeah, yeah. And it's funny that you bring up Bowie because that's what I think of when I. I, I it's almost like a uh, uh, rebel, rebel. It's not nearly as good as that, but that's kind of the feel that I get from that sort of. Right. Playing, right? It, it's, um, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's really funny that well, maybe it's not uh, that we're having this conversation because there are certain, 
certain songs with certain guitar tones that you know have been you know part of the uh, the music landscape for so long but when you stop and think about them and and isolate in on the tone itself you're like that's really kind of an odd tone why did they choose that yeah so so today i was i was driving around and i didn't I didn't have any of my my palaver listening CDs in the car with me, so I was listening to uh, the, the radio, and um, Billy Squires' "The Stroke" came on. Ah, same kind of a tone. It's just you know, it, it's it's not it's not slick. It's not overly dirty. It's just it's you know, it, I don't know it. it I, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it, it reminded me of that. Yeah. So, you know, I just bought this amp over here, the Lab the Lab Series 5. Yeah. And, like, sometimes I'm playing it, and, my, and, I, and it's just so raunchy and awful. I'm like, ugh, but I can't stop, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of the feeling I, 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 I get. So I, I, I'm okay. I like it. I dig it. Yeah, I, di- I, I dig it here. This song also... I wonder if anyone ever listens to this who was involved in the in the production or mixing of this and thinks, yeah, you know, we could have just dialed the the cowbell back a couple dB yeah. here in this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Listening but I, does sound like Rebel Rebel. I do have um, any any line that begins with the word "and" fascinates me. So that you know that in itself sort of captivates me. Really, in this song, yeah. I, I feel like I was programmed at a very young age to never start a sentence with the word and. That was part of our Central Bucks education, yes. Yeah, yeah so anytime a line begins with and, I think I've mentioned this before in, in songs, when a line starts with and, I'm, I, I immediately am like, oh, this is breaking the rules. I love it. <laughs> Anarchy! <laughs> Uh, phone sex? I don't know. <laughs> did they have phone sex in 1980? I wonder. I bet they probably did. Huh. <laughs> Pressure's building over spill. I want you. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's one of those pseudo-sexual Gabriel liquid tension lyrics. It'd be terrible to ask one of our friends of the palaver if, if phone sex was a relevant thing in, in, the, in 1980. Well, I don't know if it was in 1980, but certainly by the time we reached the mid 80s, right? The uh, the the 976 numbers had become all the vogue. And wow, I, and that's that's right. I know that because my younger stepbrother got into a shitload of trouble <laughs> <laughs> once for for running up a sizable bill. <laughs> what was he calling? It was. I guess it wasn't the joke. The joke line. It was not the joke line. Apparently, um, I was not involved in that uh, familial discussion. But uh, <laughs> you know, you 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 hear enough through the uh, through the rumor mill after the fact. Wow, nine seven six. It's so, funny so how that was that, that happened. Conversation because they had to actually narrow it down to who it was. Right. Yeah, that's quite a conversation. So, but but again, that happened. I want to say in the mid '80s because I was I was probably about 15, I think. Yeah. And and so you know I don't know these you know these technological advances happen very quickly. So yeah, it it, it may have been in its infancy. Um, you know maybe we can put the Palaver Research Department on that or 
um, or delicately ask friends of the palaver who may be a little bit older um, if they have any recollection. I'm just thinking like the chords, right? I mean, it's just a whole different, there's no speakerphone. (laughs) There's just like, there's chords. There's like little squirrely chords. It's going to make it. A little. Cords and, I mean, you. There were probably still rotary phones in 1980 for crying. Yes, out loud. I mean, exactly. How how archaic? How could you use such a thing? Okay, well, I guess that that pretty much does it for uh, end through the wire. <laughs> Which brings us to, um, I guess. You know, hold, hold on, oh. hold on. Oh, oh, we, we may not be done. Department. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. Uh, what you got here, Paul? All right, I so I have to. Oh my gosh, there's just too much here. Is this is this so, a delicate conversation or? So originally, per minute billing was provided by phone companies in the U.S. using nine seven six then nine hundred numbers. I'm trying to find a date. Okay, here we go. Okay, it says by the end of the 1980s, nearly all of the major local phone companies in the United States, plus the major long distance carriers were actively involved in the adult chat line business. Chat. It kind of minimizes the, the damage there. It's just yeah. Like- so I would, yeah, once again, Peter Gabriel is way ahead of his time. He is if he's writing songs about, yeah, phone sex. That's All right, awesome. let's move on. Okay, let's, move, let's on. move on. Let's let's flip the vinyl over and talk about, you know, one of the songs that we knew before we knew what Peter Gabriel was, and that would be Games Without Frontiers. Anti-war song. Absolutely horrifically shitty video. I don't know if hmm, any, any of you have taken the time to watch the official video on YouTube during uh, all all of this work. I, was, I don't bit, know that I ever remember there being a video. I mean, I watch so much MTV that you'd think I'd have them all memorized. And this did not really get a lot of rotation, at least in the hours that I watched. Because it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now intrigued. But our F could not stop playing it for years they could not and and i'm glad they didn't because in the absence of the video what i was going to say is you know i absolutely love this song absolutely love it i think it's you know it's always just kind of captured my imagination to a certain degree i love you know how how he communicates virtually so much just through the use of of different names, right? Mm. You know, I, I it's he 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 very clearly spells out these geographic distances simply by using names that are you know predominant in different areas as a, a way to 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 sort of call out these these geographic differences. But there's a part of it, like I, I, there's almost. And it could just be because of the when I got into this song. For for me, there's always been this sort of Lord of the Flies aspect to it, because it it by using the 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 names and they're not particularly, you know, grown up, you know, sort of names. I think and games without frontiers. It it always it always has struck me that there's this sort of it's almost presented as a bunch of children playing these games when in fact he's talking obviously about countries and whatnot um yeah you know doing all of this so it, it's you know i i hear the words on one level and i'm i'm supposed to be thinking on another level now maybe 
like I said, maybe that's just my stupid juvenile interpretation from when I learned this song. But but to this day, that the fact that I still experience the song that way adds hmm. as you know uh, some some interest to me. I experience it exactly the same way, and I think it's terrific. And I'm putting the original video into the show notes. Okay. But I'll tell you, if you've never seen it, you may not want to watch it it's, because it's not even worth hitting the button. I'm going to be it honest. Might, it might actually ruin the song for you. You're kidding. You don't think it, it's a good prelude to the <laughs> style that he uses later in his video? I, I, it's Artist, Artistically, I, I won't disagree with that. I mean, like, he's walking around with a giant flashlight. He's got... TVs going for 1980. Like, I think, I don't think I had MTV in 1980. Was it, MTV even around in 1980? I don't even know. But uh, it was probably ahead of its time. But it's it's not great. And I do think that possibly Rat took some inspiration from this for their Round and Round video that came out uh, just a few years later with the dining room table. With the dining room table, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. The other, yeah... <laughs> So the, the dining room table recalls Rats Round and Round video. There's something about Peter Gabriel wandering around um, with the with the flashlight that, for some reason, brings to mind um, Owner of a Lonely Heart, but I don't know why. Huh. But it's kind of campy in that same sense. I agree. Right. But then there's the weird footage of like the the pole vaulter and stuff like that. Yeah, it just I I I, I just it doesn't. <laughs> pole vaulting uh, jokes aside, it doesn't land with me. <laughs> mm. So th this song is fucking great. I never knew until we did this that Kate Bush was the one singing the French part. Yeah, I don't know that I did either. It's one of those things. I knew, obviously, that Kate Bush was on this record. And once you read it, you're like, well, yeah, of course that's Kate Bush. But I, I never... I just never connected those dots before we were prepping for this episode. I'm with you, Paul. Yeah. And and for the record, for about 20 years, actually, I mean, I'll, I'll just admit it to this very day, even though I know it's wrong. When the song comes in, I sing to myself, she so funky, yeah. I mean, that's what I sing because that's what it sounds like. So that's, forgive that's me. True. Now, Ken... You took French in school, and I recall you were somewhat decent at it. Were you aware of, of that this was a, a French phrase, or, or were you going with She's So Funky yeah, with the rest of us? When did the foreign languages come around? Was that ninth grade when they signed us up for that stuff? I think seventh. You probably seventh started grade. French. Seventh grade, yeah. yeah. You would have started. Oh, yeah. Seven. Okay. Cyril. Wasn't your name Cyril or something? But 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 in eighty, <laughs> yeah, my name was uh, surreal. 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 I'm still surreal. <laughs> so here's how it goes, right? The um, Games Without Frontiers was a top forty hit. It was on the radio in eighty. So eighty one, eighty two. I mean, well, I, not I, not at the time. Cool during that, but for French class. So right. I had no idea what these words were. I didn't, I, I didn't think it was fun. I didn't know the word funky either. I didn't know French. I didn't know funky. And, 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 and if Fair. you've seen me, 
say I may not know funky. I mean, you know, who's who's to judge? So, but I I do have some lore for you. Nice. <laughs> um, no. Um, very interesting. Um, we just have to 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 pay homage to a fallen hero, a man named Bill Duffield. Kate Bush's lighting tech actually had a fall. He was 21 years old, and he lost his life due to complications from that. Oh, jeez! And, and were it not for that memorial concert uh, to celebrate the life of Bill Duffield, uh, Peter and Kate may not have met. Interesting. Okay, wow. so there's. I I had challenged the research department last year on the origin story of Peter and Kate, and as always, the Palaver Research Department comes through. Way to go, Kenny G. Where where did you find that gem? Is that in that book that you're? Uh... Oh yeah, yep. Without Frontiers, Life and Music of Peter Gabriel. Daryl Sweet. Is because cool. This is the first time that Kate Bush shows up on a Peter Gabriel album, and I think she shows up in absolutely, you know, perfect forms and ways. I think she's on, what, three separate tracks. I think she's she is utilized differently on each of those tracks and, and in ways that is completely complementary to the song and yet completely you know, consistent with Kate Bush's own sort of persona. And Peter and, and Kate are going to, you know, continue this collaboration to, you know, perhaps its greatest effect a, a couple albums from now on Don't Give Up, obviously. So, mm. you know, it, it there's, there's something about this combination that is absolutely delightful. And it was, it's very cool to see it work so well right out of the gate. Even though I didn't even know it was happening. Even though, well, and isn't that, isn't that the magic, right? You're mm -hmm. like, this is so great. And and you don't even know why it's so great. And then when you hear why it's so great, you're like, oh, well, that's why it's so great. It's, I just, I love that, right? Because some things are so good, they're just, it, it it's like pudding, you know? mm you make pudding and pudding is spectacular and you don't know why pudding is great. And then when you figure out what goes into pudding, you're like, okay, cool. I get it. That's wonderful. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Tonight, guys. <laughs> you know, just thinking about this poor lighting tech losing his life. We, we, we discovered, you know, music and theater in the late eighties and early nineties. And we take for granted that, you know, Things are safe. I mean, just just reading about the early Genesis tours and all the crazy shit that they did, and 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 the stuff that they duct taped together to make these shows work. Um, safety probably wasn't you know such a big deal. You know, uh, uh, in our high school and in college, I remember you know, you know these steel spirals staircases leading up to the. The, the the second floor of the stage and lighting rigs that you could drop all the way down to the stage. And, you know, people didn't have to go up. And when they did, there were safe ways to do it. And uh, yeah, we have all sorts of equipment. We have all, all these, you know, affordable electric, what, what do you call cherry pickers and things that people go up in and, yeah. you know, life has changed. But back then people, people risked their lives for rock and roll. Yeah, you never really think about that. You know, I remember going to shows when we were in high school and college and like one of the 
one of the signs that the show was about to begin was when <laughs> the lighting guys would scale up the ladder, yep. you know, to the top of the rig. And you just kind of, you know, thought that was badass and cool. But yeah, you know, it's a long way down. That was pretty cool. I remember that. Yeah, these guys would just come off the side yep. and give me up these poles and shit, and they'd be up there the entire show. Yeah. How about that shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have um, a, a completely tangential but related story. I am deathly afraid of heights. And I remember I when I was at Delaware, I worked obviously with the uh, the student organization who put on shows and concerts and, and things like that. And we were, we were, we were basically the crew for, you know, whatever event that we put on. And there was one event and I forget what it was. It was probably, I'm going to say Howard Jones. Cause I remember what, which theater it was on, on the Delaware campus, but it was, it was a traditional theater type uh, scenario where there was the stage area and, and the seating area and everything else. And we did not have a movable light rig. And there was some cause for someone to go up a ladder, you know, two stories up over the stage to get something. And someone had sort of conjoled me to to give it a go. And <laughs> and, and I'll never forget it was it was a ladder that had like it was sort of like an A-frame with a regular ladder coming straight out of it. And and I got up to the the sort of apex and then I was on the the vertical part. And I was doing okay, and I got up a couple of rungs, and I remember looking down, and I'm like, fuck this. Wow. And I, it was a miracle I didn't wet myself at the time, and I scurried right back down and said, you find someone else. I can't oh, do it. Oh, man, you made it all the way up there. Oh, geez, you came back down. <laughs> there, was, there was no way I could go up any higher than that. It was, uh, yeah, so I, I, you know... I, I always have the utmost respect for those those light guys who would you know scamper up those those rigs and sit you know with those spots all through the show. <sighs> Couldn't uh, could never do it in a million years. But I can do roller coasters like there's no tomorrow. It's kind of weird. The brain's a funny thing. That's funny. <laughs> One quick thing that I'd like to just point out about Games Without Frontiers, and this is you know this is a delightful aspect of Peter Gabriel as a pop star. Right. Because, Paul, you made mention that FM radio in Philadelphia or maybe it was you, Ken, one of you guys could not play this song enough, which was absolutely true. But once again, this is not your typically constructed pop song. Mm. You know, it, it doesn't have, you know, the, the 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 traditional chorus or or, you know, just there's nothing about this structurally, I think that screams this is a popular song that everyone wants to hear it's just a great song right mm. and and i i love that that peter throughout his career has had the ability to sort of score these hits with things that are in the grand scheme of things pretty atypical yeah yeah i i always am fascinated about this song how you know if looks could kill they probably will in Games without frontiers, war without tears. That's the chorus, right? That, that two, yep. those two phrases, and it would fit perfectly if he just repeated games without frontiers, war without tears. But he goes back and says, "If looks could kill, they probably will again." Yeah, which is the lead-in. Yeah, and that's always just to your point, Joe. It's just, it's just not really quite right for a pop song. You know, it's wonderful. 
It, it is wonderful. I, I, you know, I love it. So hats off to Peter Gabriel for doing his own thing. Once again, once again. And the whistling is fucking great. It is fucking great. And, you know, it, you know, when you think about this from a juvenile perspective, there's always the, uh, the line where you're, what, pissing on the dunes in the jungle or something like that? Yeah. It's like, yeah, I get to say piss in a song. Yeah. Now, that doesn't hold quite as much weight today when I'm, when I'm 50, but, uh, you know, yeah. back when I, was, when I was 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever, it was like, ooh. <laughs> like it. I do like it. So that takes us into not one of us. How can we be in if there is no outside? I, you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of songs in the uh, in the rock milieu that that cover this sort of same idea. And and there's there's actually one by the Fix that covers it um, from a slightly different perspective. But I I just I love I don't love I I enjoy these songs that sort of examine the self fulfilling prophecy. I just I find it to be interesting. Yeah, as an outcast, the, this song spoke to me. Even even if I you know didn't know what it was about, even if I still don't know what it's about, just not one of us, not one of us. No, you're not one of us. Just spoke to me in in great in great ways. Um, I love this freaking song, and here it comes. Get ready. You didn't know how long it was going to take, but. I'm going to bring it up. Peter Gabriel plays live. There you go. This song. Mm. <laughs> when, like, I loved it on that. And I think the fact that David Rhodes actually plays on this track, you know, makes yeah. this one of my favorite tracks on the album. Because, you know, as, as if you've been listening along, everybody knows that, you know, anything that connects me to Peter Gabriel's play, plays live is, is instantly attractive to me. So, the guitar on this whole track is is just while it's probably the most dated sound of this whole entire you know collection of sounds on this album um it it really speaks to me because i i really connected with it immediately after listening to plays live there there's a certain energy to this song that i i definitely respond to it's um yeah i i i I don't have anything specific to say about it other than I just, I really sort of connect with and enjoy this song. Um, even though it, it, you know, I think maybe to your point about the guitar sound perhaps being dated and, um, you know, the, the, the snare heavy choruses and stuff, it's a little out of sync maybe with, the, with the rest of, of certainly what's around it, but not in a, in a bad way. You know, it's, it's more, it's it's more of a textural thing than a jarring thing. Yeah, there's a weird and fun sort of like phase or flange going on um on these drums and it's just it's just fun. Um and it is a little bit different than the rest of the album, I agree. Um but you know, it speaks to a lot of what was about to come in the eighties. And, and I, and I definitely dig it. It's funny. I'm going to say this now. It may not, it may, it may fit better in, in another episode, but at some point in time, I, I must've been like 15, I guess I was like 16 or 17 when I started getting into Peter Gabriel. And there was a weekend where 
my father, I had, I must have been 17 because it was because my brother in law, Al, was, was part of this. My father, me, and Al tore down our, our, our backyard deck and built a new one on like, on, in like a weekend. And, and I basically had Peter Gabriel's play live, um, <laughs> playing the whole time while we were, while we were doing that. It's just on repeat on the boombox and and like this song and and um DIY are like the two songs that like resonate in that that memory for me cool. this and so i think DIY comes up next week but um no. wait did we talk about DIY already DIY was last week last week or yeah two, two weeks ago i should say yeah so like that song and this one for whatever reason resonate that memory for me um, more than any coming out of not one of us. And we haven't really talked to any great extent in, in this, in this Peter Gabriel's segment at all, really about album tracking. Hmm. And, you know, we, we kind of touched a little bit on, on where the vinyl splits, but, but that's a slightly different conversation, I think. But just looking at this and, and this album and knowing that you need to get to Biko at the end, mm. I think lead a normal life. If besides the fact that it's, it's hauntingly beautiful on its own, it does such a wonderful job of setting the table, if you will, from, you know, from games without frontiers and not one of us into Biko. It's yeah. absolutely, it, it's, it's a, I think it's a it's a genius um, way to to track this at least this part of the record. I 100% agree, and it's whatever that whatever we decided was the keyboard, the electric piano that was used yeah, last the, week, the, the Yamaha oh. electric piano. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Isn't it's it just beautiful? Perfect. Oh, perfect. It is. It is absolutely wonderful. And, and I I misspoke on the last episode when we were talking about. No self-control. I believe I evoked same asylum as before. I really meant by Stephen Wilson. I really meant to to bring up same asylum as before now on Lead a Normal uh, Life as opposed to 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 previously. So, hmm. but but again, there there are a couple of different points of of Stephen Wilson connectivity for me throughout all of this. But but Lead a Normal Life. It's a four minute song with like four lines of vocals right yeah and and it it's just it's all this for lack of a better phrase setup but it's it's setup that's so absolutely beautiful and you know you don't necessarily know where you're going with all of this but you know you're you can't decide if it's just completely beautiful or if it's really kind of creepy and you should you know have goosebumps you're not really sure what's going on and then you sort of get those those four lines of lyrics and if we just read through those it's nice here with a view of the trees eating with a spoon they don't give you knives spect you watch those trees blowing in the breeze we want to see you lead a normal life again it's so succinct and it puts everything that you've heard to this point, you know, these other, you know, two and a half or three minutes of music, 
it, it gives them such a different context to me that you're like, oh, that's you know, and and so it's almost like you know with um with the sixth sense, right? The first time you watch it and you get to the big reveal and you're like, oh my god. And then you're like, why would I ever go back and watch this movie again? But when you go back and watch the movie, knowing what the big reveal is, the right. way it's constructed is still absolutely beautiful. And in some ways, it's even more heart-wrenching. And that's kind of the feeling I get from this song. Knowing where this is going, I think the music fits so perfectly there. And it's so easy for me to sort of fall into that groove and, and go exactly where Peter is eventually going to take me. And um, yeah. Yeah, that that's awesome, and and it's it's striking me as we're talking about this, and I'm I'm you know playing it in the background on my headphones and Spotify, and I'm looking. It's four minutes and fifteen seconds long. If you would have asked me before tonight how long the song was, I would have said, "Nah, it maybe maybe it's two minutes." Right? Yeah, maybe like, two and a half. Something I, like that. I, it's it it's amazing how how quickly it goes by. It's. It's so beautiful. I also noticed that there's not a lot of credits for this particular song. Like basically drums and percussion is the only thing and saxophone. I'm not even sure I would have admitted that I knew there was a saxophone in it. But isn't before there, tonight. Isn't there the uh isn't there a, that creepy guitar part though? Yeah, it makes me wonder if, you know, it's when I'm looking through the personnel I, I can't find any credits. I Morris Pert is percussion. Dick Morrissey saxophone. I mean, maybe that creepy guitar is a saxophone. It could be. And then Jerry Murata drums, which makes me think all this time. I had thought the the you know what I'd call like a marimba, right? Yeah. It, which is really a percussion. I always thought it was just like a keyboard, but maybe they were actually playing. Real live percussion. That's what? amazing. Are you kidding me? Amazing. That's out. That's outlandish. No one does that. That's what drum machines are for. Oh wait, it's 1980. Did they have drum machines? Barely. Barely. We didn't really talk about the drum. The the drum machine on Games Without Frontiers. We didn't. And and I wonder. You know. It, and it's interesting when you talk about this. Certainly having Phil's involvement in this record and you know phil collins and, and i guess all of genesis but I, we always give phil credit because he's the drummer but you know phil was was and is the master of of mixing live drums with what is clearly you know drum machine programming right right it's, it's not like when he does it he he tries to mask it, a la you know yes is leave it for instance, which right is, you know it, it's it's very obvious this is the drum machine, this is Phil, and I don't know if this is the origin of that or if this was something yeah. that that Pete was playing with the drum machine and you know it was kind of cool and Phil said oh I can take that and run away. I, I don't know you know which yeah. chicken and egg came here first but it this. I think, to to your point, Paul. I think this album and, and Games Without Frontiers specifically is probably the the earliest example of of that. Yeah, and they're both they're both contemporaries of one another. And I think that the thing that's magical about it is they're using it to your point it, in in a dynamic sense, 
right? It, it, they're utilizing the drum programming to add dynamics to the song and, and inter interchanging live drums or bringing in live drums to change the, the dynamics. And I think that is, uh, that's genius. And in the same way, in Lead a Normal Life, the, that marimba percussion at the beginning is sort of this dynamic undertone to the whole, the whole piece. It's, and, and, and we, I, I never expected us to talk this long about it, but I, it's, it's a great track. And you're right. It's, it's tracked perfectly within the album. And, and I think the fact that we're talking about it, certainly the marimba part is because we know with the, with the, with the benefit of hindsight, this technique that Phil has of the drum machine and the drumming. So it, it just seems automatic that, well, of course that marimba, marimba part has to be a drum machine. Right. It might not be, you know, and, the, and that's, that makes it even more remarkable. Right, right, right. So that ultimately lands us then with, uh, with Biko to close out this record. Closes out the record. It has traditionally closed out Peter Gabriel's set. And while Peter has had messages to deliver before... There's something different about this message. There's something more direct, more connected, more immediate about the message that Peter brings in Biko that in, in a lot of ways is unlike maybe anything else he's he did before or has done since, I think. There's, there's just something resonant about this song. It's not just the subject matter, although that has a lot to do with it. And, you know, we talk about Peter Gabriel being always ahead of the curve, right? What, how, what year was it when um, Little Steven and the, uh, the Sun City thing came out and the whole big thing, you know, against apartheid? It was years after 1980. Yeah. I, I want to say. And, and here is Peter Gabriel who is, like I said, just so far ahead of this curve in calling out, you know, this, this, this atrocity. And, and I want to say that, you know, and I made the comment in the last episode that, that Peter Gabriel as an interview subject is not particularly engaging or thrilling. The, the one part of a Peter Gabriel episode that, or interview that I saw from around this time and it may have been a little bit later than that, had to do with 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 this song and, and Biko. And, and he was so and, – and even when you look at that video that we, we linked to last time with Simple Minds and yeah. performing this at, at, uh, in 1988, his, his preamble to that, I mean, he, he – this is something, as, as all people should, but that Peter felt, you know, very strongly in him. And, and, you know, was continually um, passionate about the cause. And, you know, obviously, uh, maybe I, I say obviously, you know, you hear, you hear the song, you know, I heard it as a 12, 13-year-old, you know, kid, and it, your worldview is, is very limited at that point. And as you grow older and you start to think about this, and you're like, oh, wait a second. And it was probably about the time of the, the Sun City and the, the, the more prominent anti-apartheid movement that you start looking into this and so you know you know that Stephen Biko was he was an activist 
um, you know, against against apartheid in South Africa. And obviously from, you know, the song, you know that, you know, he apparently died in police custody. That those those parts of it are pretty straightforward. And, and that's sort of, you know, you can carry that around with you, you know, to get the general gist for a really, really long time. I was in, in the break here. I was I, I was telling Ken, you know, I, I tried to look into this because I, I felt it was very important to have as much factual knowledge about Biko as possible. And what I came across was there's an appalling lack of factual evidence around, at least what I was able to determine in, in, in my somewhat limited research, there's an appalling lack of factual evidence as to what exactly occurred to Steve Biko in police custody. What is clear is that he was arrested for, you know, going from one town to another when he wasn't supposed to be. He spent several days in police custody, was eventually transferred to a hospital or a medical facility with extreme injuries, and eventually passed away due to those injuries. And we talked on this podcast before about the the lens of 2020 when you go back and look at these other things, um, you know, be it music or, or, or anything else. And I, I think it's, you know, given given what happened in the U.S. in 2020 and a lot of the conversations we had, you know, that's the the, the systemic injustice in, in the United States is one thing. But when you think about the, the practice of apartheid in South Africa at this time, it, it's, it's almost inconceivable. And the fact that this man who by, you know, and, and I guess there's, I, I don't know, there, there may be another side to the story about, you know, what he did before he became, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a positive activist, I guess, if, if that's the word. And, and I honestly don't know a lot about that, so my apologies if I don't. But but irrespective, the fact that someone can be in police custody and be beaten to this degree, and, and then by at least the accounts that I read, not given the medical attention required in a timely fashion is, like I said, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, and, you know, I'm forced whether I like it or not, to reflect upon the current state of affairs in the U.S. and think about as a somewhat innocent kid hearing this song, thinking about how obvious this is, you know, to your point, Joe, right? Activists, arrested, beat up, dies. Like, it's just so obvious and how yet we we still struggle with removing the veil from so many people so many individuals eyes here in the US and i hearken to the the line which i think is the most powerful of this whole song was when he says the eyes of the world are watching now because you know like you said like the practice of this country that went on and everybody just looked on right for decades and i i find that line to be very striking that and in 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 a in a, a some small way he shined a light on this that caused uh, a change well i was moved by um a 
how the song even came to be and then how it came to be on the album. Uh, apparently, Gabriel couldn't get his usual radio broadcast and started fishing through the dial. Uh, shortwave versus longwave radio, whatever they had back then. And he came across the soundtrack for a film called Dingaka, a 1965 film. And he had to go through a specialty music shop to eventually get the uh, actual soundtrack. And I, I guess he found rock music to be, you know, uh, based on something different than what he was hearing. It wasn't the usual kind of 4-4 beat. It was more of just a consistent pulse that he wanted to take adva advantage of. So maybe instead of counting to four, maybe counting to one. And then once it formed, uh, just having the courage to sing these lyrics, I think he knew he wasn't the perfect vehicle being of, uh, you know, private school education, white man, UK. But he persisted. And it was Tom Robinson, openly gay, new wave pop songwriter, uh, friends with Peter who heard it and convinced Peter to actually put it on the album. It wasn't necessarily even going to be on this particular release. Really? That is mm. stunning. Wow. Can, if, if I may, I'd like to, I would like to read the, the, the lyrics on this because I think, again, there, there isn't a whole lot of them, but they're so poignant and so powerful. September 77, Port Elizabeth weather fine. It was business as usual in police room 619. Wow. You know, when, when that stanza ends up with the man is dead, it's just, it's so striking the way he hits that. When I try to sleep at night, I can only dream in red. The outside world is black and white with only one color dead. Holy cow. And then, you know, Almost like the you know the story arc of a trilogy, right? Things get bleak in the middle, and then you've got that that breath of hope at the end. You can blow out a candle, but you can't blow out a fire. Once the flames begin to catch, the wind will blow it higher. Which is that's such a powerful message, right? And and even think about that, Paul. You said it perfectly. Suburban white kids in America in the mid-1980s who have no reason to know anything about apartheid are listening to this song and asking themselves questions. What does this mean? You know? And, and, and it's, it's just fantastic. And then, of course, he finishes up with, and the eyes of the world are watching now. Now, there are a couple of aspects of this. And, and Ken, you sort of, I think, touched on this a little bit. And and this is obviously this rhythmic aspect um, is going to come into much greater importance on the next installment um, of, of Peter Gabriel's catalog. But we start to see it here. And we have we have talked before, again, in this podcast about cultural appropriation, not only cultural appropriation, but also this sort of potentially xenophobic lens of of the the late 70s and the early 80s you have rush sort of lifting up 
Asian music themes and putting them in inappropriate places. You have Phil Collins on, and then there were three talking about Native Americans in, by today's standards, terrible ways. And here you have the the thing I think that sets Peter Gabriel apart is, you know, here in, in Biko and in certainly in security, there seems to be a an interest in an assimilation of and storytelling about what are, I guess, termed, you know, indigenous peoples. But with with Peter, these things seem wholly genuine. He is interested in this. He is trying to incorporate, you know, these aspects of music into his presentation, but in a way that is completely appropriate and respectful, if that's the right word. I, I mm-hmm. mean... You know, it it never. I never read a Peter Gabriel lyric and go, "Oh, I wish he hadn't said that." You know, <clears throat> am am I missing that? I mean, do you guys see that the same way? Or yeah, and, and I, I just I find it I find it to be noteworthy. And and along those lines, <laughs> the most interesting aspect of this whole thing, certainly with Biko, because again, you you have a very serious subject matter and 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 he's starting to bring in you know this sort of african influence into into the song and the structure and and the the sort of rhythmic bed that he has and then there's this i, I mean the only way to describe it is a bagpipey keyboard that comes in mm. which is completely incongruous but it works and it doesn't seem contrived or stupid or anything else. You're just like, Oh, well, that's interesting. You know? (laughs) And so, um, let's credit Larry fast who, um, initially came up with the woodwind type synthesizer sound in Salisbury Hill that is just so ubiquitous with uh, uh, Peter. And uh, apparently uh, Larry came up with this sound. The drone patch lent itself to transformation into an electric bagpipe sound. What they're saying here is that a little pre-internet historical research on the Boer War turned up that the first and second Battalion Royal Scots were in numerous military actions played into battle by their traditional bagpipes. The underpinnings of apartheid had bagpipes. Oh, mm. that's fucking awesome! <laughs> <laughs> and well, chilling too. I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in, in a, in, in, and, and I say awesome in the sense of the 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 genuine connection there and the oh i mean that that's a that's a masterstroke of of songwriting at that point to to bring that in because like you said apartheid has bagpipes at its very beginning that i i had no con i had no clue that that was actually the case but it just it changes the import 
of that sound in this song, especially in the fact that, um, and, and I haven't listened to it in, in a week, so I apologize, but I want to say the bagpipes are there in the beginning, but not at the end, right? So, so that's kind of cool. If we could, while we're talking about the tonalities of the, the songs, I, I pulled out a guitar for reference here. Uh, when it starts out, we're actually hearing clandestine recordings of Steve Biko's funeral. Umbaya, umbaya. I, 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 I don't profess to know anything about the, the, the words being spoken, but what we have here musically is essentially some type of a G major. In, 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 in its most pentatonic major form. And the words are translated on the day we return, on the day we return, on the day we return, blood will be shed. Uh, so this is a bit of a, a, a protest song being sung at the funeral. Now, what happens musically uh, when David Rhodes plays his big honking power chord? Because they are basically in the key of G pentatonic major, when he hits this huge A, it's perceived basically as an A minor, because that would be congruous with, you know, the second chord in the in the G scale. But then we find that as he's 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 holding that and the song is forming, it this is actually a mixolydian, if you will. I mean, kind of a major. So, 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 so the, the, the implied third changes from this, this sad chord to a slightly happier chord, but it just pushes it in this weird sonic direction. Now, most people, if you're going to hear this on the radio or, you know, whatever, um, aren't thinking in terms of that. But, but for me, and I assume for some listeners, whether they have musical knowledge or not, you feel that push and pull between that overlapping chant and, and, and the key of the song that happens. And the pace is so slow that it happens naturally and organically and it's creepy and it's beautiful. And that lends to the beauty of it all. Uh, and again, at the end of the song, they have some clandestine recordings from Steve Biko's funeral. Uh, in, in the world of Prague, this harkens back to uh, one of my favorite uh, acoustic Pink Floyd songs. Um, what is that? With the soccer chant at the end. Oh, it's off more, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous song. But th thank you for that indulgence. I, I, I've, I've wondered for years what it is harmonically that happens in the very beginning of Biko as the, as the key, as the tonality forms. And it, it's the chant into the distorted guitar that really morphs it in a quite emotional and interesting way. You know, speaking of Pink Floyd, I think I, I brought this up in one of our, one of our three episodes covering the wall. When I saw Peter Gabriel on the, uh, uh, so tour. And the first time I saw him in particular, uh, Kaz Ken, I think you and I saw him behind the stage. Was that you and me? 
I believe it was the Us Tour. Yep. Where, yep. Was it behind the stage? We were to the side of the stage, probably you know, 12 rows back. But at some point after I went to the can, I, I slithered back right behind the drummer. Okay. And I, so I was essentially first row, but behind the stage. And I stayed there for like three or four songs until security was like, eh, kind of clacking me down. I was like, yeah, okay. All right. Maybe I don't yeah. belong here. And the first time I saw this performance, at the end, right, he's standing up in front of the crowds and he's r raising his arms, you know, over his head with the, uh, uh, uh. And of course, everybody is doing it in the audience. And the lights are on the audience and it's just going on and on. And it was a little eerie. It was a little bit like, you know, when Roger Waters says, you know, is, isn't, after all, a rock concert, you know, or a fascist rally, just like a, a big rock concert. It just, I remember being struck at the age of 16 or 17, whatever it was, that the amount of influence that a single person could have over a large crowd, particularly in the context of something very meaningful, which was this song. I, I, I don't buy any, any, I don't mean to to make it into something negative, but I, I, it struck me as, as a little eerie. And, um, and it, and it, it sort of, it feeds into my appreciation of the wall and that whole ladder part where the, uh, you know, the fascist gang are, you know, doing a two step to, um, run like hell. But, um, it's, uh, you know, it's something that has always struck me and sort of explains, the you know the mob mentality whether that mob mentality is i mean i don't think we consider mob mentality ever in a positive light but it can be right group of people following someone around something passionate can be very positive um but this was the song that that sort of opened my eyes to that that idea um and i think maybe even to this day when i'm in a crowd and everyone's fist pumping, I hesitate to uh, join in because of that. <laughs> um, no, I understand. It's, it's the artist using all the fascist tools against fascism, but in any form, it's still scary. Yeah. And can I, I, to take a step back, I think that song is actually on Obscured by Clouds, not on more, but I can't figure out which song it is, but... As it may. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I like that, Ken, that using the tools of fascism against fascism. But, yeah, anytime you have anyone with that type of control, it just takes the wrong person in charge to uh, to set it all awry. Before I think the song is Fearless. Yes. Metal. But fearless is absolutely beautiful. Oh, is it Fearless? Okay. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. And, yes, yes. Now, 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 um... At the end of, of, of Biko, I described it as, as a Mixolydian major because um, the scale would, would have this G note th that he uses throughout the verses. But then when the chorus happens, oh, I'm not really in tune, but it becomes the full major. So 
the, the, not only is he singing at that critically high part of his range, that, that, that A note, but when he comes down, he sings the, the, the G sharp, which, which solidifies now the major scale instead of the mm. mixolydian scale, which I didn't know that before. And in, in hindsight, I, I suppose it makes the end of the song melodically much more new and, 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 and surprising and powerful. Nice. Love it. You know, here again, once you get into it, and, and this conversation right here, and, and I know we beat this drum all the time, but it to me, it's just, it's fascinating. And it it's really the the source of power of, of what we do here on the Palaver, because we each have little pieces of the puzzle and we bring it together and we end up discovering things sort of on the fly about a song that we all thought, I think, we knew so well, you know, yeah. and, and that's just, I, I absolutely love that. So I think, you know, this is going to be one of those examples, Paul, where even after we're done having this conversation, I'm going to want to go back and listen to Biko even, even more and, uh, and, and sort of contemplate these various aspects of it that have now been, you know, enlightened upon me. Agreed. And, and the fact that it almost, didn't make it onto the album seems stunning, right? Right. <laughs> I, right. Mean, I, I, I started. I started talking about this song with you know what a what an important milestone this was and everything else, and it it almost wasn't even there. It, right. <laughs> that's just amazing to me, you know. But that's what makes some things great. You know, you just you you can't always explain why things happen, but here it is. And and it's here, and it's, gosh, it's 40 years old at this point. It still has, a, a, you know, a significant amount of, of import. So that's cool. This is, you know, I, I think this is just a, a fantastic album, and um, I, I, I love so much about it. I, I know a lot of people probably get more excited, perhaps, about next week's. Uh, episode and security i think there are a couple of tracks on security that reach the heights of peter gabriel 3 but i for me and this is this is my deal pre-so this is this is the the album to talk about this is the pivot point this is the linchpin this is the high watermark if you will i i think as a whole but that's that's my perception, and and I'm certainly willing to to hear other perspectives on that because again, I think there is a lot on security, and I think in a certain amount of regard, Peter is going to make another pretty far leap forward in terms of of what he's doing and how he's doing it for the next album. So you know, I, I'm I'm willing to have that conversation. Just my preference is 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 this. So. Very, very happy we got to spend as much time as we did on this record. I don't know that I, I don't know that I'm looking f like, I don't know that I don't know what I want to say. I don't, you know, Peter Gabriel four is wonderful. I don't know. If, I don't know if I hold that one in more high regard than this one. I guess we'll find out af after next week, but, but for sure, Joe, I agree with you. 100% three is the, the pivotal. It's the pivot point in the solo career. And it, you know, it's just like, it just gets better if it's, if possible, it just, it continues on and gets better from here. What I think would be interesting 
is if we could take these two episodes, combine them, and then find three people to overdub all of our comments and our conversation in German so we could release <laughs> the German version of this of this episode. <laughs> Can we get that done on Fiverr or something? Um, <laughs> I, I actually was looking earlier. It, 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 I don't think we can get it for five bucks. I think it's going to cost a little more. Oh, well. You know, you can't uh, you can't do it all. I was actually I was actually having fun. I was looking at the German titles on uh, Ein Deutsches album, and it just it makes me kind of laugh. I love <laughs> I love the way you know the the German language translates in in certain regards. So so this is this is the beginning and the end of uh, Steve Lillywhite when it comes to Peter Gabriel. They made a fantastic album, and Gabriel moves on. It's funny hearing Steve Hogarth refer to Lily White, who he never did end up working with. I, I guess I guess Hogarth made some effort to be friendly or cordial with Lily White, and it, it didn't materialize. So, uh, just you know, who wouldn't who wouldn't want to be friends with H, except for the, <laughs> the <laughs> self, Steve Lily White. We will, uh, we will find out where we go in the producer chair next episode as we move on to Peter Gabriel 4, or as I like to call it, security. And I think that will be a very, very interesting conversation. But until then, gentlemen, I certainly appreciate your time here over the last two weeks talking about this record and look forward to uh, going forward. Cheers. We should just end with lots of random gated drum sounds. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on... Uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at Prague Paula on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You can email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or presumably wherever you do find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.